0: Uh, there's lots of ways that we could do this. There, I want to take a bit of an overview uh, a little bit later tonight. But before we do that, let's just dive straight in uh, and have a look at some of the, the things that the law says. The first question is, where is it? What are we talking about, Old Testament law? Um, we know the Ten Commandments, uh, and that's part of it. You find them in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Those were spoken by God himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, according to the record. And they kind of give us a comprehensive summary of a lot of the ethical requirements, the sort of the the big picture of some of the detail that's found in the law. But with three other places where you find what we're calling Old Testament law, just after the Ten Commandments, in both Exodus and Genesis, you've got something which some scholars call the Book of the Covenant, it's a list of case laws, some rules about slaves, rules on how to deal with disputes and quarrels, property, some regulations for judges and sacrifices. Uh, they're found in the, uh, Exodus 20-23. Uh, to 23. You've then got the Book of Leviticus, which is on its own is almost all a series of laws and regulations about sacrificial offerings, the festivals that Old Testament Israel was uh, excited to take part in. There's a section in the clean and unclean foods. There's a section on hygiene and cleanliness, some stuff on family knife, sexual relationships. That's Leviticus. Now, that law, the Ten Commandments, the covenant in Leviticus, was stated to be given to Moses by God at Mount Sinai. So back to the narrative, children of Israel have been... Abram was called, they were in Egypt, ended up in Egypt, rescued from Egypt in the Exodus, and then... God brought them to Mount Sinai in, in Egypt, probably, and gave them this law. That's where the stuff happened. But then we've got uh, the book of Deuteronomy, which is Greek for second law. And what Deuteronomy is, is, it's like a restatement of the law 40 years later, according to the narrative. So after the 40 years in the wilderness, the people of Israel are on the plains of Moab, If you visited us in Jordan and we took you to the baptism site, that's the plains of Moab, (coughs) just on the border uh, across, you can see Jericho in the distance. Moses brought the people together and he preached a sermon, which is recorded as the book of Deuteronomy, in which he restated a lot of what had already been stated in Leviticus and Exodus. Some of it in the same way, some of it slightly developed, slightly expounded on, uh, slightly explained. So that's what we're talking about tonight. Don't be frightened of it. It's actually more accessible than you think. The book of Deuteronomy is quite an easy read if you sit down and and read through it. There's some narrative in it There's a bit of a story. And because it's preached, it's it's quite, I think, it's quite devotional in some ways. You've got a few chapters in the middle of Leviticus, uh, say from 19 to 26, are a nice, easy read as well to get some idea of how things work. Because as Moses says... When he was at the end of Deuteronomy, when he's finished preaching, he says, These laws are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that's the context. Israel is rescued, just about to head into the land of Canaan. And that's when the law is given. So what does it say? There's lots of, scholars have lots of ways of dividing it up and categorizing the different types of law and the different subjects. I'm not going to get into any of that. I've just picked out a few different areas that I thought are interesting for us as a way to get in. We'll do a few of them, and then we'll jump out and and sort of take a different look and see what things say. But this is the first one that I've got up on the screen. It's a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 12, and it's about the number of laws number of texts which deal with the worship of Israel and the festivals that Israel uh, is supposed to, um, to enact. So this verse says destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods break down their altars smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles in the fire cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. So this is about, specifically, Israel living in a land where there's another religion already there, and God requiring them to be different, to not get involved in the religion of the other people that are there, and not to, to worship in the way that they worship. This was one of the main checklists on the audit that we talked about the first week, when the the writers of the books of Samuel and Kings comment on the kings of Israel. One of the comments was, and we read one, I think, oh, it's the next slide. We read a comment on King Manasseh, who was one of the bad kings. And and the writer of the kings there says, Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. And he also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole the way Ahab, king of Israel, had done. So Manasseh is directly going against what we just read in Deuteronomy. And this is very important in the story of Old Testament Israel, how the kings and the people did or did not embroil themselves in the religion of the Canaanites. Now, there are many other prohibitions uh, of actions and ceremonies which were related to the Canaanites and the other peoples who lived in the land, um, which we'll not read all of them. There's there's stuff about child sacrifice, sorcery, casting spells, things that the Canaanites did that Israel was prohibited from doing, all making it very clear that Israel had to be distinct from the host nations, the nations uh, surrounding them. Okay, So that's negative. There's a number of positive ideas about how to worship God as well. Deuteronomy 16, this is up on the screen as well. Verse 1, this is about the feast of the Passover or unleavened bread. Observe the month of Abib, which is roughly April, and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Abib he brought you out of Egypt by night. This is a requirement to celebrate the redemption from Egypt, and we find echoes of this Obviously, in the Lord's Supper, which was first enacted during the Feast of the Passover, and from which we find some continuity today. Also, you've got the Feast of Weeks, a couple of verses on down, also on the screen. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing corn, then celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. Standing here at Harvest Thanksgiving, we can see... That, that we do the same thing. We still give thanks to the Lord for the produce uh, of our of our of our uh, of the work of our hands and the produce of our fields. Also on the screen, next when you've got the Feast of Tabernacles. I'll not read all of these, but celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your feast. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maidservants, and the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's still done in Israel today. I know people who are from Europe and aren't Jewish, who got all mixed up in Jerusalem when they moved to Jerusalem for for a work project at these tents that people had in their back gardens, which is what they set up to do this Feast of, of Tabernacles. And this guy didn't know any of that and got himself into all sorts of cultural difficulties by misunderstanding why people had tents in the garden. So still very much alive today in Israel. Those three festivals in Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen says, those are the three times a year when men must appear before the Lord your God at a place he will choose. These are three of the important regular festivals in uh, Old Testament Israel. Now, there was another one, the Day of Atonement. Uh, I don't have a text for this because uh, it's all of Leviticus 16. Yom Kippur, it's a very important day in, in Israelite worship. The priest has to put on special clothing. It's the only day of the year that he's allowed into the, 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 the holy place in, in the tabernacle. Two goats are selected, a bull is selected and sacrificed for the sin offering for the priest. One goat is then sacrificed for the atonement of the people and the other goat is sent out into the desert and that's the scapegoat. We'll not get into any of that, but a very practical, real, concrete way of demonstrating or teaching theology from the priests to the people. Lots of rules and regulations about what happens to the blood, how the coal for the fire should be dealt with, what incense to use. A very public lasting ordinance which Israel was to do once a year, and still of course today it's the High Day uh, in, the, in the Jewish calendar and very much celebrated on a public holiday in Israel. Lots of other rules for how priests should behave, uh, but basically Deuteronomy and Leviticus they give us a very colourful, vivid picture of how Israel should worship uh, in the Old Testament. First of all centred on the tabernacle in the days before Solomon, and then it moved things moved to the temple in Jerusalem after Solomon built the temple. We had an Old Testament lecturer when we were at college who was Jewish, from a Jewish background, and he talked about the great barbecue. He talked about how the excitement of country people from Galilee or somewhere else outside Jerusalem coming up once a year or or in these other feasts and and hearing hearing the bells and smelling the incense, but most of all smelling the meat that was being cooked Uh, from the temple and he saw this as a great celebratory barbecue that everybody uh, got to take part in and some of the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent sort of record the excitement of the people coming to Jerusalem and and seeing how this all worked. A Very public uh, system of worship, very tangible, very practical and most importantly very different from the nations around. Okay, so that's to do with worship. Uh, The second category I wanted to mention is to do with land, because this is very interesting. Land was part of the promise that God gave to Abraham way back as part of his covenant promise. Three things he was promised. Many descendants, land to live in, and that they would be a blessing to the nations around them. And they were brought to a land which was not originally theirs. And there's lots of difficulties that we have with that. But putting that aside, Numbers 34 describes the land. Uh, the, the, the geography of the land Joshua 13 to 19 in great geographic detail tells you exactly what tribe got what piece of land what their boundaries were and who they lived next door to so you've got a very let's say equitable sharing out of the land amongst the tribes according to need not according to whichever tribe was most successful in battle or beat the other tribes to get the land the land was not owned by Israel or by the people in Israel. The land was owned by God. This is very clearly stated. Um, And only 11 of the tribes were to get the land. The priesthood weren't allowed to own land. So the Levites, numbers... Oh, I have this up, yes. The Levites weren't allowed to own land. The priests, who are Levites, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance in Israel. They shall live on the offerings made to the Lord by fire, For that is their inheritance. We'll maybe come back to that later. But the priesthood, who were a very powerful group in Israel, were prohibited from owning land. Very interesting. The third third thing to do with land is that land could not be sold. This is to do with with the, the people not owning it and with God remaining the owner of it. So Leviticus 25, 23 says, The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, And you are but aliens, say foreigners, and my tenants. Now, we'll not read Leviticus 25, but we see what that means in the idea of the Jubilee. So the Jubilee is when every 50 years, all the property which had been exchanged, and I've just said you can't sell land, but what the different tribes and families could do was to exchange land or sell land between each other for a period of time. And at the end of every 50 years, Everything was reset and the land went back to the original family owners. And Leviticus 25 actually explains how this works. It says you're selling the land based on the number of years left before the next Jubilee. And it talks about that. So uh, if you're on year one, you're selling your land. You're selling the use of the land. You're basically renting it for 49 years. So you're going to get a good price for that. But if it's three years to go to the Jubilee... You're not going to get as get a good a price because 50 years there's a reset, the land comes back. What does that do? That avoids the more powerful families from becoming more powerful, and gaining more land, and the weaker families and the smaller ones, and maybe those with 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 with, with, with worse land. Uh, it, it prevents them from continually being subjected to the more the success of the more powerful tribes. You remember the story of Ahab. Um, When Ahab wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard, do you remember that? I'm not going to take time to read it, but he wanted to buy the vineyard from the guy Naboth. Naboth's reply, you probably didn't notice, Naboth said, Oh, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And if you just read that, you'll assume that, well, Naboth's just saying, Well, no, I mean, uh, no, God forbid, I'm not going to sell that to you. But he's actually saying, no, the Lord forbids that I sell you the, the inheritance of my fathers. He wasn't allowed to. Ahab wasn't allowed to become the owner. He was allowed to rent it, but that's not what he had intended. He had intended to add it to his growing amount of wealth and land, and that was prohibited by the law. The next slide, I think, is Leviticus 19. The land must support the poor. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the edges of the field. We know this from the story of Ruth or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time, or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. That's obvious. And even the Sabbath was applied to the land. Uh, The land in Leviticus 25, Exodus 23, the land had to observe a Sabbath. Every seventh year, the land was to be left fallow and the poor allowed to eat whatever grows, and presumably people had to have stocked up a little bit. So lots of, of stuff to do with the land, lots of regulations, very important as the economic base of Israel. Israel was a, a, existed from the land, a, not owned but held in trust effectively by the tribes and the people, and very important safeguards on how the land could or could not be accumulated by the larger families, the more powerful families, and specific prohibitions against the priesthood owning it, or, uh, which was very different to the Israelite or Canaanite cultic system, priesthood. And we didn't read it. We read it a couple of weeks ago. The king specifically oughtn't to be allowed to accumulate the land, and it was reset every 50 years. Lots of stuff more we could say about the land, but a um, very key part of this the third category I picked was because we we sort of we talk about the food laws. I haven't got a slide for this. But there's a list in the Leviticus chapter 11 or Deuteronomy chapter 14. So the Israelites were allowed to eat ox, sheep, goat, deer, fish with fins and scales, but not pigs, rabbits, camels, or fish without fins and scales. Now we could speculate why we could... People have talked about food safety, the climate, and the type of meat, and the type of lack of storage and refrigeration facilities, and all of that. There are also some ideas about this. A lot of this kept the Israelites again separate from the surrounding nations. If we read them out individually, they sound silly today, they sound not relevant to us very clearly. But very interesting how the list in Deuteronomy, anyway, begins. And ends so you've got this food list. But at the beginning in verse one of Deuteronomy fourteen, it begins by saying, You are the children of the Lord your God. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. And then it lists. And then it ends in verse twenty-one by saying again, But you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So the food laws are explicitly related to the holiness of God. And this sounds so way out for us but if you go to Israel you'll not be able to buy a cheeseburger because Leviticus fourteen twenty one says do not cook a goat in its mother's milk and the Jews over the years have extrapolated this to not mix meat and dairy so you'll never get a cheeseburger at McDonald's nor will you get a not easily a latte after your lunch because what they do is they have they make dairy they make breakfast a dairy meal you get lots of nice cheeses and milk and all the rest you not get any meat in the morning lunchtime is when you'll get the meat you not find milk or dairy anywhere i was at a conference once in israel and i asked for a cafe latte after my lunch and i was basically brought into another room and told that i could have it in the other room as long as i drank it in the other room before i went back because it was such Uh, an offensive thing. to Even secular Jews are used to to these um, kosher laws. So it seems strange to us, but still very much alive amongst uh, Jewish uh, communities today. The cleanliness laws we won't get into in detail. There's lots of stuff in Leviticus about purification after childbirth. Skin infections, there's lists and lists of instructions about skin infections and how they're to be taken to the priest and how there's guidance for the priest as to how to know what to do with them. There's a whole dose of stuff about mildew on clothing. Again, it's the priest that has to determine whether the clothing has to be burned or whether it can be washed. There's a section on bodily discharges and what to do if that happens. Lots of details. I'm sure there are medical studies that have been done uh, arguing how relevant or irrelevant these things are today. We sometimes worry, I think, about the growing list of responsibilities that we put on our Presbyterian ministers, but uh, the Old Testament priest had to act as a butcher and a doctor and a health inspector, so count yourself lucky. <laughs> Moving through these rapidly, there's, uh, there are laws to do with family and sexual relationships. There's a whole list in Leviticus 18 who you can't have sex with. Um, it includes close relatives, other people's wives... Men, if you're a man, animals. Many of these are legally and morally accepted by society today. Still, there's prohibitions. Others, not so much. But it's very interesting how the chapter begins. Leviticus 18, verse 3 says, "'You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. "'You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. "'Do not follow their practices.'" I am the Lord your God. That's the verse at the beginning of the list of prohibitions. And at the end it says, Keep my requirements, and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came. And do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Again, a key reason for these is that the people were to be distinct from the surrounding nations. There are economic laws dealing with economics, and debts and protection of the poor. I haven't got any for the screen, but Deuteronomy 15 requires that all debts are cancelled every seven years. Verse 1 says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. And it's not just a throwaway comment. The next verses get into the detail as to how this happens. It does mean what it says. There's a section in Exodus 22. It's do not ill-treat an alien. That's a foreigner or oppress him. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If lending to the poor, do not charge interest. And if you're taking collateral, like a coat or something, take account of the need of the person. If they're a poor person and you're taking their coat as collateral, lend it back to them in the evening if they're cold. Um, Very practical, down to earth, uh, compassionate requirements for Israel. And of course, a lot of the Quranic legislation or ideas in the Quran is very closely related to the Old Testament. And one of the things we have today is Islamic banking, which many people would say derives from this Torah comment and requirement on not charging interest, Uh, although this is related to not charging interest to the poor. I think most scholars would not say that that necessarily applies to everybody. The, the, The law here does allow Israel to charge interest to foreigners. Uh, maybe also to they could extrapolate that to investors but not to the poor uh, ok there's, there's uh, there are laws about the judicial process, witnesses, two or three witnesses are needed for a conviction, there's a penalty for perjury, there are rules for judges, this is all in Deuteronomy 19, 16, 17 judge fairly for a judge do not accept bribes, do not show partiality, in difficult cases bring in the priests and get their view We read a couple of weeks ago, rules for a king. Um, Deuteronomy 18 seems a little bit reluctant about the whole idea of a king. It says, okay, if you want to have a king, then he shouldn't be foreign. He shouldn't acquire horses or wives or gold or silver. He must take note of the scroll of the law and read it and follow it. In other words, the king must be subservient to the law, not above it. A very, very important principle, which of course was... Uh, was was ridden through by most of the many of the kings in, in later Israel and Judah, so we could do we could do a lot more of that in and out, and we could just look at different laws, and it'd be very interesting. Um, uh, but we, we won't take lots of time to do all of that. There is one more topic I want to to just mention before we move on, and that's to do with slavery. Uh, one of the things I like about the Old Testament, the Bible, is it's very realistic. It's very down to earth. So in real life, even in Israel. Families got into debt and poverty. Maybe sons were sick and they couldn't farm the land. Maybe there was something disease on the land and it didn't produce. Whatever. But the law allowed them to sell themselves as slaves or workers um, to other families to provide income to support themselves. The brutal reality of real life. But look at how the law treats slavery. A couple of different things just to to mention. Exodus 21 uh, says... That any purchased Hebrew slaves, so Israelites who have been lent themselves or sold themselves to other Israelites, must be set free after six years, if they want. Totally free. That's the end of their slavery. Can't have the slaves for more than that, unless they actively have decided that their lot is better as employees or slaves than it would be if they went back to their own land. Very interesting Now that in itself could be a problem for unmarried women. You could take in a girl, um, she works for six years, you decide we'll just cast her out. An unmarried girl is a very vulnerable person, especially from a poor family, even I mean we can even see that from having lived in Jordan. This is a very, very dangerous situation. So the law here prohibits the family who owned her from casting her out. unmarried girls cannot be discarded and just sent to, to go free they must be redeemed back by the family that, originally, uh, that she was part of if their original owner doesn't want her anymore she must not be sold to foreigners and if she becomes married to one of the sons of the house she's beca- she becomes married as a daughter and becomes part of the family as a daughter with all the rights of a daughter not as a slave anymore that's all quite enlightened in terms of the, how slavery worked in the nations around Israel. Another one is: I don't have references for all of these, but I've checked them all. If a slave is injured or killed by its own master, by his or her own master, the master should be punished. You don't find that in, in, in the laws of other societies. The slave was not property. The slave was a person. If a master knocks out an eye or a tooth, the slave gets to go free. But even more strangely than all of those, Deuteronomy 23, if a slave runs away from his or her master, that's it. He or she is free. He must not be sent back. The slave must not be oppressed, it says. And that's it. So slavery is maybe not the right word. It conjures up a lot of things that we bring to it which aren't probably the way things were in those days. And this is all a very radical approach very much in contrast to how slavery worked in the surrounding nations at the time. One more thing on slavery uh, Israel went to battle quite a lot. You can see this in the Old Testament. So, Deuteronomy 21 says When a man goes into a, a warrior, goes into a village or a town, sees a girl, they, they, win the, they, they win the battle, brings the girl home, she must be left alone for one month. He, he cannot use her as a spoil of battle. Then, after one month, he can't touch her, she must either be married to him, in which case she becomes his wife with all the rights of a wife, or she's set free. She cannot be treated as a slave. Sometimes you hear people castigating Old Testament Israel, and there are difficulties in how, for me, in, how, in the conquest and in other passages. But in the middle of all of, the, all of that, in the context of the day, there's some fairly radical stuff here in terms of protecting the humanity of, of individual people that you don't find uh, in other nations. Even in the harsh reality of slavery, slaves have to be treated with respect, not as uh, property. So that's, that's us dipping in and out, and that's interesting, but you can do that at home. You can read, as I've said, you can read swathes of it. If you read two or three verses, it won't. it'll seem strange, but if you read a few chapters you begin to get a, a bit of a feel, especially with the narrative, and imagine yourself just about to take on this responsibility of living in a new land that God had given you and living for him in that land. But I want us to, um, to stop dipping in and out, and I want to step back, actually, and, look at, and notice a couple of things about the law and how it was given. The first thing is that the law was given as part of the covenant. So we're back to our first week, and we talked about this relationship between God and the story where he chose Israel and set them into the land. So the, 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 law, the law was part of the covenant. Um, on the board, we've got Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6. This is what Moses was given by God as part of his speech um, just before the Ten Commandments came. God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. So the Exodus has just have just been rescued and have come to Sinai. You've seen how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the law which God is just about to give was part and parcel of the covenant with Israel. He'd rescued them from Egypt, he was sending them into the land, and the law, which was also a gift of covenant, and the law was their guide as to how they should live. Did you ever notice that the Ten Commandments doesn't begin, Thou shalt have no other gods before me? It begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You can't get any more specific than that. The law of Israel is part of the requirements of the covenant that were given to Abraham and Moses, and goes along with the other components, which include the land, promise of land, and the promise of being a blessing to the nations. Okay. The second thing, which I think is very interesting, which is what we'll talk about the most now, is that the purpose of the law, what we've talked about in all the other verses, the purpose of this was to create and perpetuate a certain type of society. So we've seen a bit about how the law was based on the idea of Israel's tribal structure family elders had some decision making power you had judges you had priests and reluctantly at some point maybe you had a king we've seen the importance of the land land divided out amongst different tribes very important for the well-being and survival of Israel farming and agriculture The the clans were almost self-sufficient within each other. We've seen how the land couldn't be sold permanently every 50 years. Uh, It had to be reset. We've seen uh, the idea of the ceremonial system, how it was central to Israel's life, the Sabbath, the festivals, the Day of Atonement, applied to all. And we've looked briefly at how the law sets limits to the acquisition of land, the priestly authority and the power, uh, even the king was limited in how he could use his position to gain more wealth for himself so the law is coming together to create a type of society i think in week 1 i mentioned some scholars who have looked at the social structure of israelite society as uh, based on the laws and the narrative in the old testament but especially on the laws and they've compared them with the, what we know of the laws and the activities of the nations surrounding Israel at that time. I want to quote one of them. I think I mentioned Gottwald, who has been studied and quoted by Chris Wright in, in his um, studies. But Gottwald was a, was a secular sociologist, social anthropologist, who studied in detail what the society of Israel would have been like if they'd followed these laws. And he says, The results of his study has been the emerging cross-section of Israel as an egalitarian, extended family, segmentary, tribal society with an agricultural, pastoral, economic base, Okay, characterised by a profound resistance and opposition to the forms of political domination and social stratification that had become normative in the chief cultural and political centres of the ancient Near East not going to read it a second time. In other words, any nation which kept these laws would have been radically different from the nations surrounding them, especially in their ideas of justice, fairness, protection of the vulnerable, valuing of the human person, and in restrictions on the abuses of power. So secular sociologists saying to us that these laws would have created a society very, very different from the other nations. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at this because we read earlier, God himself was saying that you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The word holy meaning separate and distinct, different. Interspersed through the law, we've read some of the pieces, but you get various statements all the way through. You are the children of God. Somewhere else it'll say, out of all the peoples of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. And then repeatedly, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Very clearly we can see that one of the purposes of this law was to create a people distinct from the other nations, a holy nation which belonged to God. And that brings us to the, the next point, which is, well, why? Why would God do that? So the point, well, I don't know why I've written it in such academic language. I've, said, I've written down the required holiness Of Israelite society, how they were supposed to be, was a reflection, or was supposed to be a reflection, of the holiness of her God. In other words, when you look at the law as a whole and the type of society that it creates, and you look at it in the context of Canaan and the ancient Near East at the time, then you can view this as a very practical outworking of the nature and the characteristics of Israel's very specific personal God. In other words, just as God, Israel's God, was different from the Baals and the Ashtoreths and all the other gods around, so his people, Israel, were to be different from all the other nations around them. And Chris Wright then makes a very Fitzroy statement. He says, far from the social life of Israel being immaterial or incidental to its theological significance it is actually through that social life of Israel that a major part of God's self-revelation is to be discerned. In other words, in normal words, God is revealed through the actions and the witness of Israel, which was governed by her law. So nations that were looking at Israel and seeing how they behaved, if they behaved the way the law required them to, would have seen a society very different with values that we've mentioned, which were the values of of Israel's God, which was different, so different from the nations around. So the law was actually partially a revelation of God. Far from something that we can ridicule and and cast away, this law is something very important. It tells us a lot about God himself. It's actually about mission. And then Chris writes, makes a very clear argument that, that the whole purpose of the law and Israel was to do with mission, was to do with witnessing to the nature of God to the people around them. So, that's interesting. Now, how long have we got? That's why the prophets in the Old Testament were so angry, and God was, whenever Israel disobeyed. So, when Amos, I know you looked at Amos a few years ago, we listened to the tapes that David Livingstone gave on Amos. When Amos raged against Israel and Judah um, for their wickedness one of the things that they picked up was that they were oppressing the poor and denying justice to the oppressed. There's an interesting thing in chapter 5 of Amos. In chapter yeah, chapter 5 he, Amos is saying, well you're trampling on the poor you're forcing poor people to give you grain, you're oppressing the righteous, you're taking bribes, you're depriving the poor of justice, yet Well, he's saying here. I dis- yet, yet, the religious system is still going on because he says, "Then I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And fed up with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps." So hold on. What's Amos saying, or God saying here? The the system is still happening. The temple stuff, the ceremonies, the worship, the sacrifices is still happening. But earlier in the chapter. The poor are being oppressed. The righteous are being denied justice. Um, the, the courts aren't working. Judges are taking bribes. God is saying he's not interested in this, in the ceremony, if the people aren't being, being fair, if it's not accompanied by fairness and justice. So the contraventions of the law, when Israel didn't obey the law, that was important because they're witness to the nation's was being harmed, and God's name was being harmed. Which is why, and we'll not get into Jeremiah, but it's why Jeremiah explains to the people that if they keep, as it says at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 27, if you keep the terms of the covenant, you'll keep the land, but if you disobey, you'll lose the land, and that's exactly what happened in the exile. So then, in the New Testament, the context that Jesus was born into is very much still related to the law. Think of all the dialogue and the discussions that Jesus had with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were this group of people who were fixated with how to keep the law. In its context, very good thing to think about. They were very, very careful about the law. But Jesus had a number of of encounters with them where he was arguing with, with how they were seeing how the law was supposed to work. So it was very important to Jesus. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount last year. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to say, repeatedly, You have heard it said, and then he quotes something from the Old Testament law, and then he says, But I tell you. So that formula, well, you have heard it said this, but I tell you this, he uses that to reinterpret a little bit the statements in the law. He does that for murder, for adultery, for divorce, for oaths, for an eye for an eye, for love your neighbor, for hate your enemy. He takes the law and how the people and the Pharisees were seeing it at the time and reinterprets and restates it in a wider way. Not just reinterpreting the individual laws, but talking increasingly about the ethical requirements of God's people in the new kingdom of God, as opposed to the kingdom of Israel. Jesus is requiring his people, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, to be radically different from the standards and the practices of the rest of society around them. He says several times, you are not to be like that, or you're not to be like them. In other words, the, the Gentiles or the unbelievers around you. So Jesus is teaching the same thing as the law taught to Old Testament Israel, that in our social relationships, our attitudes to economic need, to politics, to poverty, that his people in the New Testament, which is a lot closer to us than the Old Testament Israel, his people are required to have a distinctiveness uh, that was similar to the Old Testament requirement to be distinctive. Paul then goes on in Romans and in Galatians and in, in other of his epistles to go out of his way to affirm the importance of the law, but not to require it to be kept the Old Testament law by the Gentile church and there's a discussion in Acts 15 which we'll not get into now so what has this got to do with us the law we've said is important very important for Israel it had a real purpose of making it distinctive Uh, why are we still talking about it today well three quick things we've said number one it was part of the covenant requirements on Israel having been rescued from Egypt sending them into the land of Canaan. It was related to the theocratic system of governments, the tribal structure and all of that. Therefore, it's not immediately and directly absolutely inherently applicable to us. You can't take a verse from Leviticus and quote it to me and say, you must do this. We are not Old Testament Israel. We were not rescued from Egypt and we weren't being sent into the land of Canaan. So this is not directly, immediately, and transferably applicable to us word for word. Does that mean it isn't relevant? Hold on, what did we say? We said that the law, if we understand it and think about it and understand it in its context, was a revelation of the character of God. Not in a sort of philosophical statement, but in a very concrete, it's like a case study. This is who God's character is not in, in like those Greek words, where he's omniscient um, um, and he's all-powerful and he's, he's all-knowing. He's, um, he's all it's a case study in a very concrete, specific This is how we want this people to act in this specific place. We, we've seen the protection of the vulnerable, concern for God's holiness, ethical requirements being distinctive. We've said that it's about worship and mission, which were the same thing in, in, in the Old Testament. One of the things Chris Wright often says is in the Old Testament, you can say, for God so loved the world that he sent Israel. Before Christ came, Israel was his people on earth. And Israel's job was to witness as partially a revelation of who God was. And they were to do that by by obeying the law. So, okay, same for us today. This is a reminder to us, I think, about being on the front line. We are today, Israel isn't here, and Jesus, in personal form, is not here. We are here. We are in Belfast in 2014. And just as Israel was to be a blessing to the nations and a light to the Gentiles, uh, through their keeping of these requirements, which were reflective of God's character, so... The same for us today. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Let your lights so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So there you go. Our ethical behavior is part of our witness to our God. And we can see some of the requirements of what God wants from his people in the Old Testament law. Now, that's really the law finished with for tonight. as as you'll notice, we haven't really solved any of those questions that we mentioned at the beginning of this series. Um, This this little series, which I'm never going to do again, is is over. Um, It's been one small part of Fitzroy's ongoing journey to try and understand who we are and what God would have us do here. But we haven't gone into the detail of the thing, of the, of the verses. That really is, it's like Stephen Jonathan's job in the passages that they deal with week by week. But, <laughs> but um, I'm, I was trying to say two things. I firmly do believe that we need to be guided, even in the 21st century rational world that we live in today, we do need to be guided by this book. Not, but not by treating it literally and not by applying it directly as, as some do. We can't read a verse from the Old Testament or from anywhere else, and say that is God speaking directly to us. It's more complicated than that, and and it's easy for us to react against a very literal interpretation and move to the other side, the other extreme, and by saying, well, really, it's a very interesting book. It's got great poetry and great language, and we can sing the Psalms, and we can read the stories to our kids, but we have moved on. We are in a different world, and we need to work out for ourselves uh, what God wants us to do. That's not right either. This book does constrain us. It does tell us about God. It's not easy. It would be easy to if it was literal, if it was the Koran, and we could, just, we could just quote the words to ourselves. It would be easy if it was finished with, and we could just you know, tell the stories to ourselves and work out for ourselves how we live. But we're somewhere in the middle. We're in this very um, more complicated but immensely more exciting place of having to think about it, having to read it in its context, having to understand as much as we can about the people and the nations and the geography and the history and the politics of where all this stuff happened. We're going to have to work out what that said about God, going back to our first week in the story and where this fits in, in the story, the story which we are still part of. And... Um, and working out what that God is like, sort of like going up. Uh, Chris writes sometimes in places called it a ladder of abstraction. Uh, you, you take the concrete Old Testament or New Testament context and you go up to the principle of the, the character of God and then you come to where we are and you come back down and you work out, well, what does that mean for us today? And in doing that, we need to use the Old Testament laws, the stories, the Psalms, the wisdom writings, the teachings of Jesus, the New Testament epistles, all the rest, all together to put together a picture of God and his purposes and his characteristics, and then to work out what we should do. And unfortunately, that's not all very easy. And we're not all going to agree on every issue. And we have to work out what are the issues that are important enough to fall out over eh, and what are not. Uh, And that's not my job tonight. That's me finished. So I thank, I thanks for letting me do this. I, I've enjoyed it. Um, in many ways, I think we're back to where we started on week one. To me, this is about a relationship. Um, that's my approach. This is about a relationship between God and his people. Started a very, very long time ago. And it went through lots of different phases. And it's still going today. So there you go. Read the book and get to know the author.